Before we get to our passage for this morning, our st- uh, study for this morning, um, I'd like to take a minute and just pray uh, for Derek Ramsey. Um, Derek plays the drums uh, here when uh, when the full band is here, and he's had COVID for about a week now and um, was struggling with it at first, and then it seemed to get better. And uh, I just got a phone call and a text uh, here um, that they're taking him to the hospital. His oxygen is uh, pretty low. Um, he's really struggling. So, uh, so anyway, Derek's a good friend. Um, so I'd like to take a minute and pray for him. All right, let's pray. Father, we do uh, just want to lift up Derek and Anne Marie right now. Um, and the bonds and the boys as well. Uh, it's a scary moment uh, for them. Um, we know that you are in complete control and uh, we trust you, um, but we're also concerned. Um, we, uh, we wanna lift Derek up to you. Uh, we pray that you would uh, just work in his body right now, um, give him strength that he needs uh, to fight this. Uh, we pray that uh, as he gets to the hospital that his uh, oxygen would go up, that the doctors would know exactly how to treat uh, this, Lord. I pray that you give them wisdom. Um, keep Anne Marie safe as well. Uh, give her courage uh, in the midst of this. And uh, we just pray that we would receive good news quickly and uh, that Derek would, uh, would get back on his feet soon, Lord, and uh, would heal up quickly. Uh, we're thankful um, that you are good and you are powerful and you are the God that heals. And, uh, and so we trust you, Lord. Um, and uh, we want to continue to pray for Derek throughout the day today, and uh, we just thank you. Um, thank you for your care for us. So we ask all of this, uh, trusting you and, uh, and knowing um, that you are good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, um, you can open your Bibles up uh, to Revelation 5. We'll get there eventually. Um, but you can go ahead and just have them open there. Uh, and if you want to flip around some, we'll be in a number of passages this morning. We're going to get back to our series on the gospel. Uh, how about some good news? Um, and as we get into this this morning, uh, if you were to look behind, if you could pull the screen up behind me, um, some of you probably don't even know what's back there, <laughs> but uh, there is a cross that is center stage on the wall behind the screen up there. And of course, if you, if you drive by this church, you see on the front of the building a cross. It's uh, a little bit crooked and leaning, uh, but that's kind of the, uh, the MO that has been that way for a number of years here at WBC. Um, and, uh, and that's not anything unusual to have the cross uh, as, as highlighted in a Bible-believing church. Uh, for 2,000 years, no no symbol has been more closely associated with any group of people than the cross with Christians. I mean, it defines Christianity. We have the cross on our jewelry. We have the cross in our homes. We have the cross on our churches. Um, all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a disproportionate section of them focused on the last week of Christ's life, which culminates and builds toward the crucifixion, the cross. Um, The Apostle Paul thought the cross was absolutely central to the message that he preached, 
You can see this in a number of places. I'll just highlight one in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech of, or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, that was the heart of his message. One contemporary author put it this way. I thought this was helpful. The crucifixion is the touchstone of Christian authenticity, the unique feature by which everything else including the resurrection, is given its true significance. And that's all well and good, and most of us would agree with everything that I've said so far. I mean, it makes sense. But since the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, is at the center of our faith, and since it pretty much defines our faith, and everything else makes sense because of the cross, then you and I have to wrestle with Exactly what did the cross achieve? What is the work of the cross? I mean, what actually took place when a Jewish teacher named Jesus was nailed to a Roman torture device 2,000 years ago and he died on that cross? Why does that matter for you and why does that matter for me? What did that accomplish? And as This author puts it, why is the cross so significant? What is the work that the cross does? Well, you can can start to answer that question. I think if you asked most people, what does the cross accomplish? Most people would say, well, Jesus died to save me. And that's true, but how? How does he save you? How exactly does that work? And is that the sum total of everything that Christ's death accomplished to save you? And even we should ask, why was his death a saving one? I mean, what about this guy dying saves me? That doesn't normally happen in the course of everyday life. This person dies, therefore I'm saved. How does that work? Now, over the centuries... Over the millennia now, Christians have have attempted to explain and answer those questions in a number of different ways. They've tried to pinpoint the accomplishments of the death of Christ by giving these different models or theories of explaining the atonement. Now, the vast majority of these are rooted in Scripture. I mean, if you were to go to a theology book and you were to read about these different models of atonement, then most of them would have scriptural backing to them. And of course, by atonement, what I'm talking about there, a model of atonement is a model of how God and man are reconciled, how peace comes between between God and man. So how does God do that? Through the death of Christ. How does the death of Christ bring atonement? And so I want to address that question this morning. And this is going to be really brief, right? I mean, we've got 35, 40 minutes here that we're going to talk about this topic of what the cross achieves. And I have a whole section of my, you know, my library that have big, big, thick books that talk about what the death of Christ achieved. And so this is going to be very, very brief this morning. But I do want to give a, a, a little bit of a warning before we jump into this. We get very used to talking about the death of Christ in a singular way. I mean, we get used to saying something like, Christ died to save me, or he made penal substitutionary atonement for my sins. 
And so we get very used to talking about the cross in a singular way, and I want to warn us against that. And yet, at the same time, on the the opposite side of that, we can't just flatten out all of these different ways of talking about the death of Christ. And we can't just pick and choose these different models and say, well, these are all basically the same. They're sort of different angles on the work of Christ, and any of them are fine to talk about what Christ's death achieved. The way this works is that the Bible presents the work of Christ in a particular way, and all of these different models fit together like puzzle pieces, and there's a specific way to explain what Christ's death accomplishes that brings together all of these different models or understandings of the atonement. And so I want to try to work through that this morning, and I think you'll see what I'm getting at as we get into it. I want to, the way I'm going to work through this is I want to give you four questions and four answers to help us grasp Christ's work. And so we're asking these questions. I'm asking these questions this morning to help you see how these different explanations of Christ's death and what it accomplished fit together. They fit together in a certain way, and I want you to see that. So I don't want to just give you these four different models and say, you go and fit them together. And worse than that, I don't want to just not fit them together and and not explain them to you. And so four questions and answers to help us grasp the work of the gospel, the achievement of the cross. And here's the first question that I think we need to ask. What is the goal of Christ's work on the cross? What did he set out to accomplish? To answer this question... I think we have to go back to God's original purpose for human beings at the beginning of creation. And so briefly, what is that purpose? Well, according to the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we've been through this before, but it's always good to be reminded of it. According to those chapters, God's purpose in creating human beings was for humans to rule and reign over creation. Remember that? He made Adam and Eve in his image and gave them dominion and told them to spread out over the earth and cultivate the earth and take dominion over the earth and subdue it. So God created human beings as his sort of vice regents, rulers who reigned under his authority on his behalf. And as they ruled and reigned and took dominion over creation and spread out over the earth, they were to have communion with God. And so they were kings and queens who dwelt in communion with their authority, with God. And so we could say that God's purpose was a rightly ordered kingdom ruled by humans in fellowship and relationship with him. That was the goal in creation. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 lay out for us. Now, obviously, sin entered the picture, and sin disrupted that purpose. It messed things up. And so we need to properly describe what happened when sin entered the picture. What was the issue at the heart of sin? We have to understand that in order to rightly grasp the goal of Christ's work on the cross because the cross is seeking to solve the problem created by sin. And so all of these go together. God's original purpose, how sin disrupts that purpose, and then how Christ's death seeks to set things right and to solve that problem. And so what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? 
human beings chose to believe the words of the serpent rather than God. They trusted in the serpent. They took his view of the world and they plunged themselves into rebellion against God. And they were transferred to the kingdom of darkness. They were no longer under God's rule and authority by his word. Now they were under Satan's rule and authority, under their own rule and authority, submitting to Satan. And so Adam and Eve were put at enmity against God. There was division brought there. They were under his wrath for sin. And now Adam and Eve served Satan and sin. And the the ultimate outcome of that of moving from under God's authority to under Satan's authority, the ultimate outcome of that was judgment that would lead to death, eternal separation from from God. So in other words, they were exiled from God's kingdom. They were kicked out of his presence, exiled from his presence, outside of his rule and reign, out of the garden. And they were placed under the authority of Satan. And through all of that, they incurred legal guilt. They were objectively guilty before God for what they had done. I read the passage this morning that describes this quite clearly, Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, under his authority, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so, keeping in mind God's original goal for Adam and Eve for human beings, his original purpose for his image bearers, and keeping in mind how sin has disrupted that goal and has moved human beings from under the authority of God and his word to now listening and obeying the voice of the serpent, following the prince of the power of the air, keeping all of that in mind, now we are in a position to see how the Bible presents the goal of Christ's work. Because you can't understand what he's trying to accomplish if you don't understand the original purpose and the problem. So let's think about the very first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3. This is a promise of what the cross will accomplish. And what does it say? I will, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this a promise of? It's a promise of victory for the seed of the woman. It's a promise that the work of the serpent will be undone. It's a promise of the defeat of God's enemies. Hebrews 2 talks about it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now one of the passages that in this series on the gospel that we've talked about is 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to flip over there, that actually might be a good idea for you. I know I had you in Revelation 5, but but flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, is where Paul begins to define the gospel. He talks about how it's of first importance. 
Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, so you've got the heart of the gospel there, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. But I want you to notice how Paul ends this chapter talking about the work of the gospel and the resurrection specifically. Look at chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, go all the way down to verse 54. What is the ultimate outcome of Christ's work, the goal of his work? Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are a whole bunch of other passages. I'm just scratching the surface here of these passages that we could look at that talk about the goal of Christ's death. But I want to state very clearly the goal of Christ's death, the ultimate goal is the defeat of Satan and that God's image bearers would be liberated from the power of sin and from the judgment of death and the penalty of sin and that God would rule and reign over all through human beings, a representative human being, we'll talk about that later, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he would reign over all in victory. Ephesians 1 talks about this, that Christ would be all in all, that every Philippians 2, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. That's the goal. That's the end game. That's what Christ's death is supposed to accomplish. I would say it this way, restored rule is the goal. But that goal is incomplete on its own. And you see, you can't just say, this is the way to talk about Christ's death. Some have called this Christus Victor. And you can't just boil it all down to this, Christ wins the victory. Well, the question is, how? I mean, how does he win the victory? Does he just walk in and smash his enemies? I mean, in some ways he has the authority to do that. But obviously we know that's not how he accomplishes his goal. And so how does he do it? And that's our second question here. How does he accomplish this goal, the goal of the work of the cross? Now, we talked a few minutes ago, and I read Genesis 3.15. I think I put this back up there. I did. Tremendous. Genesis 3.15. We talked about this a minute ago, and you can see in this the promise of victory for the seed of the woman over the serpent. But how does that victory come? Well, look in this passage, it says that he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, but you shall bruise his heel. And so this is, I know it's sort of a vague promise, but it does indicate to us that there will be suffering that the seed of the woman will endure in order to win the victory over the serpent. And this expectation and this promise gets more specific as scripture unfolds and we begin to find out what this suffering will entail and what it will look like. 
and how specifically victory over sin and death will come to God's people through the seed of the woman. And as you go on, pretty quickly in the book of Genesis, it becomes clear that suffering will take the form of the shedding of blood in order to satisfy the wrath of God and pay the penalty for sin. I mean, you see this almost immediately in Genesis with, with Abraham and Isaac. A ram is provided to propitiate or to satisfy the judgment for sin in place of Isaac on Mount Moriah, which incidentally, I'm not sure if you know this, is right outside of Jerusalem, a mountain outside of Jerusalem where Isaac is sacrificed there. Now we're going to get into the book of Exodus in just a couple of weeks here, but think about what happens there. Think about the pattern that is set in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel are spared death. They're spared the wrath of God. How? Through the blood of a lamb that is applied to their doorpost. And through that blood, they are liberated from Egypt and they win a great victory over the seed of the serpent. The expression of the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh, in that time. And so there is the sacrifice of a lamb on their behalf, the shedding of the lamb's blood, that wins the victory for them and liberates them from enslavement to the powers of darkness. Let me show you this in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2. So look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, right? So, so that's what happens to us. We are made alive. Our sins are forgiven. Now look down at verse 15, which I know there's no verse uh, on there, but it starts with the word this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And I'm sorry, verse 15 starts here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so the powers are disarmed and put to open shame. And that is the same act in which our sins are forgiven and we are made alive with God. There is triumph and we are given forgiveness and new life. What act is that? How does that happen? Verse 14 in the middle. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's what's happening there. In our sinful state, you and I have a mountain of debt to God because of our sin. There are IOUs that are piling up higher than we can even see because of our rebellion and our sin. And because of that, we have placed ourselves under the authority of Satan, and he can rightly accuse us as guilty. And he can rightly say, you are worthy of condemnation because you have rebelled against God and you have listened to my word. And so because of those accusations, we are under his power and his dominion. But when Christ dies on the cross, when he sheds his blood, that entire stack of accusations, all of those legal demands, that debt to God, all that we have accrued immediately is canceled because all of those IOUs are rightly and fully and justly paid for. And what it says here is that they are nailed to the cross. They're covered by his blood. 
And so because those accusations are canceled, they are eliminated, they no longer apply to you and I, we are free from those, now the powers of darkness are defeated and Satan has no authority to accuse you. There is no guilt that is applied to your account. He has no rule over you or me because of the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. And so here's what I would say. Christ wins the victory for us over sin and death and Satan. He liberates his people, brings them into fellowship with him by the blood of the cross. It's victory through penal substitution. Through paying the penalty as a substitute on our behalf, Christ wins the victory. It's through that that we are freed and darkness is defeated. Now I want to show you one more passage where this is played out, Revelation 5, where this connection is made here. Back to Revelation 5. I want you to notice in... You've got this whole throne room scene here. We won't read the whole thing. John is a witness to this. They're looking for someone to open the scroll. They can't find anyone. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, we know who that is, has what? He's conquered. Right? He has won the victory so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But how does he conquer? How does he win the victory? By smashing his enemies as the lion? No. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why does he conquer? How does he conquer? How does he win the victory? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. One author put it like this. The death of the slaughtered lamb is a strange victory. Yet, on it hangs the final sentence against evil, the vanquishing of injustice, and the redemption of sinners. Over and over again, The Bible presents Christ's death on the cross as a satisfaction of God's wrath and a redemption of sinners. And I want to add to that that he wins the victory over the powers of darkness and liberates us through that death. He dies in our place. Because of his death in our place, our sins are forgiven and the victory is won. Isaiah 53, very familiar passage, could not be clearer on the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so over and over again, Jesus is the substitute. But here's a question maybe you've not asked before. Yes, he wins the victory by dying on the cross, shedding his blood, propitiating the wrath of God. But why is he able to do this for me? I mean, what in the world gives him the ability to die? Why does, for me, why does his death count on my behalf? How is he my substitute? This is our next question. Why is he able to do this for me? Well, we've just gone through Christmas. This is the point where the incarnation becomes quite significant for us. Jesus is able to stand in for us, for you and for me, because he becomes a man. And more importantly, and beyond just that he becomes a man and takes the form of a servant, he becomes the last Adam. He becomes the originator of a new humanity. He's not just any man. He's the last Adam. And why is that so significant? Well, we tend to think very individualistically, don't we? I mean, it's part of our modern consumer post-enlightenment culture. We think very individualistically. But the Bible is set in a culture and a time that is very communal. We're all sort of in this together in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul basically understands the world to consist of only two men. That's it. And you and I are either attached to Adam or we are attached or in the last Adam. Those are the only two options. One author explained it like this, and I I love this. Have you ever noticed that when Paul writes of Adam and Christ, he writes as if they were the only two men in the world, as if no others existed. That was the big picture of humanity. For Paul, it is not that humanity is a vast throng of disconnected individuals. Adam and Christ are the two men, the heads, the first fruits of the old and the new human race. Each one of us is merely a seed in one of those fruits, a member of their bodies, dependent for our fate, not on ourselves, but on the fruit in which we belong. And so Jesus comes as a man, 100% man, and he comes as the last Adam to represent us and to take up our cause. He's the head of the new humanity. Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, the declaration of righteousness. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is why, interestingly enough, in the Gospels, you see Jesus doing the same things that Adam did. And you see him doing the same things that Israel did. He is tempted in the wilderness. He is tempted in a garden before he dies on the cross. In the early chapters of Matthew, over and over again, you see Jesus recapitulating, rehearsing the history of Israel. He goes into Egypt with his family and comes out again. And Matthew actually quotes the Old Testament and says, this action fulfills what was done in the Old Testament. And it fulfills it because Jesus does all of that without sin, in perfect obedience. And so he's the last Adam, the representative of a new humanity. All of that in Matthew, the early chapters of Matthew, presents Jesus that way. And because of that, now he can represent you and I. He is the head of the new humanity, and he can be our substitute and take our place. This is why the New Testament uses the language of in Christ so often. If you go and read the Apostle Paul, almost any of his letters, you will see that language of in Christ, with Christ. Why? Because if you are redeemed, if you've been liberated from sin, you have been moved from the kingdom of darkness, from being in Adam to being in Christ. And now all his work covers and applies to you. You are a seed in the fruit, the first fruit of Christ. And so, here's how I would summarize what we've said so far. Jesus, in his death on the cross, the crucifixion, wins the victory over Satan, over sin, and over death through his penal substitutionary atonement. He takes the penalty of sin as our substitute, reconciles God to man, and he is able to do both of those things by being the last Adam and representing us as our head, the head of a new humanity. And that brings us to our last question. What do we do in response? After this brief look at the work of Christ and trying to fit together these different models, which each of these have a technical name for them, the first, one is, the first question is Christus Victor. The second one is penal substitutionary atonement. The third one is recapitulation. Jesus represents us and does what we should have done and obeys where we failed. But after all of that and fitting those together, I think in a biblical way, what do we do in response? Well, there are two major responses here, and you cannot have the second one without the first one. Understanding what Christ has done for us and what his cross work achieved calls us to respond in repentance and faith. When you look at this picture and you see how rebellious we are as human beings, and then when you see the love of God that has been demonstrated through the cross of Christ for sinful creatures, it should be devastating to our self-centeredness and our pride. I mean, it should convict us to the heart. It should pierce our hearts. We have rebelled. We have rejected our creator who is good and merciful and gracious. 
We have willfully submitted to the kingdom of darkness, and yet, despite all of that, God has pursued us. He's the one who's come after us. He sent his son in the incarnation, and he's pursued us in love. And you can see an appropriate response in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the gospel to the crowd there on the day of Pentecost, and when he finishes, the last phrase here is verse 36, he finishes his sermon, Here's what he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then he shuts it down and is quiet and look how the people respond. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, how do we respond to this news that we have heard of our sin and God's grace and love for us? Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so if you're listening today and you've never turned from your sin and to Christ in repentance and faith, because of his great love for us and because of what his cross work accomplished, this would be the appropriate and the first response to this good news. Now, there's a second response, and this second one flows from this first response. You can't have this second one without the first one. The second response is an internal change that happens in the life of a believer as we consider the work of Christ again and again. Now, up until this point, these first three questions, we've been talking about the objective work of Christ. All that he has done in winning the victory, in being our substitute, and paying the penalty for sin, in representing us as the last Adam, the head of a new humanity, all of that has been objective, has been outside of us, right? It's something that you look outside of yourself and realize has happened by faith. But the cross not only has an external objective influence or work, it also changes us internally. It changes our heart. There's a more subjective change that is wrought in our lives because of the work of Christ. There's an internal influence where we are shaped and formed by going back to the cross over and over again. Now, some people over the centuries have tried to make this internal subjective influence the sum total of Christ's work. They have said that the death of Christ on the cross is really just a great example for us. It's where we learn how to sacrifice for one another and how we learn, where we learn how to love one another. Christ's death is much more than just an ethical lesson, an example for us. But there is some truth to that. Considering the work of Christ should change us. It should motivate holiness and sacrifice and love. And it should alter the way we see the world. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 25 here. He's encouraging these believers who are, who are suffering greatly in the culture that they're in. They are persecuted. 
They're on the bottom of the totem pole socially. And here's what he says. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so there is an example that is set by the work of Christ. We look at what he did and we we aspire to be like him. But then the beautiful thing is here is that subjective influence is based on the objective work of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then here's the objective work on which that subjective work happens. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Allusion back to Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter brings together the objective work of Christ in bearing our sins upon the tree and the subjective change that takes place, the example of Christ's death. We learn from it. And so, this has been... Hopefully you feel like a very brief introduction. There's so much more that we could say on this topic. Trying to introduce the work of Christ in 35 or 40 minutes and all the ways that it changes us and shapes us and the objective things that happen is is not easy. But here's my hope for today. I hope you can see that the work of Christ is multifaceted. It is like a diamond and every way you turn it, it shines significant in our lives. But I also hope that you see that all of these different facets have to fit together in a certain way. Christ wins the victory by dying on our behalf as the last Adam and then shapes us as we continually go back to his work on the cross. And so this is a subject that you just can't grasp and can't appreciate by saying Jesus died to save me. That is true, but there's so much more to go into and to enter into from the work of Christ. And so I'm hopeful that that a taste of this, of the multifaceted work of Christ, will encourage you and motivate you to go and explore this in the new year and to learn and be changed and be grounded further in your faith and what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for for all of this. Give us wisdom. Help us to apply to our lives. Help us to learn from this and to appreciate fully what you have done in all the different ways that we have been saved and delivered and liberated and changed through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time. It's in his name we pray. Amen.